We're in chapter 4 of our study of 1 Peter. Today's study might be a little uncomfortable. So far, we've focused on Peter's desire to bring comfort and hope and to remind people who are suffering throughout Asia Minor of the life that they have in Christ, that hardship cannot touch. And we found a lot of cause for hope. We've learned to see God in the hard times. We've learned that life continues, that joy is unabated, that hope endures. Today, Peter gets right to the heart of one of those areas we think of, but only from a distance. And that's the whole issue of persecution. You see, in America, we live out our Christian life in somewhat of a bubble. It's the bubble of freedom of religion. Over the last 2,000 years, the great majority of people that have chosen to live a life following Jesus have lived out that life in a truly hostile environment. Somewhere around 45 million people in the last 2,000 years have been put to death for simply trusting Christ and trying to live a life that honors him. In the last 100 years, more have been put to death in the name of Christ than in any of the previous 19 centuries. Last year, the number was somewhere just shy of 200,000. See, we're in such a bubble here. And you have to remember that the New Testament was largely written by people and to people who were experiencing that very same type of life. So for us in America, we're somewhat handicapped because we view Scripture through the lens of liberty and prosperity. And so Scripture becomes an encyclopedia for success, a set of arguments that we can either choose to believe or not believe based on what's most convenient for us or what fits into our life experience. See. So here we are, and I have to confess, I am both grateful, so grateful to live in a nation where I can worship God freely, where I can raise my kids to know and worship Christ without fear of death. I'm so grateful for that, but at the same time, I find myself struggling and wondering if in the end we're actually better off. Because historically, the church has thrived most when it's under persecution, and the church grows anemic, weak, when it's brought out into the daylight and approved by society. And I would argue that our recent history in America shows that the church is increasingly losing its influence on culture. And what Jesus called us to is to be culture shapers, culture transformers in his name. And so we're about to look at a passage that presumes a group of people that know well what it means to name the name of Christ at the potential cost of their very life. I think if we're honest, we get a little uncomfortable with that thought. I just want to invite you into that. Just go with that. Let God be present in whatever reaction you have when you think of persecution. And let's see as we go through this chapter where that leaves us at the end. And I think what you'll find is it leaves us at a very hopeful very powerful place. We're going to go to the fourth chapter of 1 Peter. I invite you to turn there with me. The first thing that we need to take out of this was not something that the listeners of Peter had to be convinced of, and, and that would be the first point, and that is that suffering for Christ is inevitable. Let's just read through the first six verses. Therefore, 
Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, and orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This whole chapter begins with a very interesting word, therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? (laughs) Well, he says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. Peter reminds us again that Christ is our model. He's our inspiration. And what he's referring to is verse 18 of the previous chapter. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And then he goes on and says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves. Now, what Peter's about to do here is talk about the two primary reasons why Christians face persecution. Before that, I just want to take you back to Jesus' own teaching. Look with me at the 15th chapter of John. The great majority of the Gospel of John takes place on a single night. It's the night Jesus is betrayed and the conversation that he has both in the upper room and then on his way to the garden where he is ultimately arrested and would soon be put to death. In the course of this conversation, he wants to prepare them. And we can see this as we begin reading at verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teachings, then they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. Go down to verse 1 of chapter 16 just for time's sake. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will even put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And now jump down to verse 33 of that same chapter. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Jesus. Last week you came into the city and they declared you as king. Now you're changing the rules and you're saying not only do they hate you, they're going to hate us. I don't think I signed on for this. And now you're telling me this so I'll have peace? Yeah, I've told you this so that you will have peace. When inevitably the hardship would come, Jesus wanted to be able to have them look back and say, oh, this is what Jesus told us about. It's okay. I I might not have seen this coming, but Jesus did. And, And there's a certain peace that comes from that. This may catch me off guard, but it doesn't catch my Savior off guard. And he goes on and gives the greatest cause for peace at, at the end of this verse, right? I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. 
I have overcome the world. At this point, perhaps for them, that was another one of those confusing conversations. But I know there was a time they looked back and knew that Jesus had, in fact, overcome. He had overcome death itself and was now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he was the one that said, yeah, the world hated me, and you're going to face hardship. Don't be surprised. But just like I've overcome the world, you will also be an overcomer. Yeah, I think we can find peace in that. Yeah, I think when we come to Christ, it's the end for many of us of a long journey. We're hungry for meaning. We're hungry for connection with the divine. I think of, a, was it the first Toy Story where the dinosaur does something at the end? He goes, great, now I have guilt. All of us have to get to that place where we go, great, now I've got guilt. Where we understand that the issue that's keeping us from that connection with God is an issue of our own making. And then we see Christ's remedy for that. And we see grace and we say, I need that, I want that. And we come to Christ, and it's, it's this filling of a, of a need, a fresh start, and a connection with God, and it's powerful. That's what we sign up for. Just like the disciples, as we go along that journey, there's a point where Jesus says, now, now you're ready for a fuller picture. If you're really going to come after me, there's a cross to bear. I, I think that's our biggest problem in this bubble of religious liberty, we take Christ's idea of taking up our cross and following him in two ways that are erroneous. One, we see it as symbolic. The cross was not a symbol. It was an instrument of death. And when he said take it up, all that they knew at that moment were the thousands of people that had been forced to carry their own cross to the place of execution outside of Jerusalem. There was no mistaking when Jesus said take up your cross what he was talking about. We think of it as symbolic. And the second thing we do is we think of it as optional. Jesus said we take it up every single day. He who would find and save his own life, Jesus went on to say, will in the end lose it. But those who lose themselves for my sake, they will find life. It's hard for us to think about that. We want it all. I want to hold on to my life. I want Jesus to rubber stamp my plans and to make it all work. And Jesus is saying, if you really want the life that you think all these things you're holding on to are going to give you, let go of all of them so that you can embrace me fully. There's a dying to self that gives us life. I don't for a minute believe that we're called to seek out suffering. There are people that, in the name of Jesus, just act really badly or espouse certain practices and certain things that have nothing to do with the Bible or certain political viewpoints, and they put it out there with bad attitudes and bad spirits and suffer because of it. And then they think, oh, that's my cross to bear. We can suffer for all the wrong reasons. I don't believe that we're called to seek out suffering, but I think our problem is we presume that we're meant to avoid it in our little bubble. And so we never fully embrace what it means to authentically live for Christ in a way that might cost us. Peter talks about two primary ways that we suffer for Christ. The first, the primary thing that we need to recognize that causes and brings on persecution is simply that we name Jesus Christ as our Savior. Why is it? Why is it that some in the culture around us and, and whole cultures themselves find that so offensive? 
I mean, Jesus lived a life of love. He touched people's hearts. He sacrificed himself so that people everywhere can know peace with God. He lived a life of love. He died a death of love. He offers us eternal love. What's the issue with Jesus? Because to acknowledge the Jesus that historically lived and died is to have to surrender my rights to my life, to have to admit my inability to find God on my own, to live a life that I was purposed to live, to embrace Jesus Christ even with all that he offers in terms of grace and forgiveness and life requires that we relinquish our authority over ourselves. People, I think whole cultures can find that difficult. When Peter refers to pagans, he's not just calling names. They really were pagans. And when he talks about lives of debauchery, he was talking about the culture in Asia Minor where paganism worked its way into every piece of society, and their religious and social practices were filled with immorality. They no longer were pagans. They named Christ as the one true God. And that set them apart against all of their society. And then the second thing that they struggled with, Peter also deals with, and that is that we suffer in a society like that because we live differently. Imagine the extreme difference of these Christians that said, we no longer live that life. Now we know there's death there. We no longer live according to our will, our passions, our desires. We live according to God's will a life that pleases him. Imagine in that culture the difference that these people represent. When that part of culture that is totally given to selfish, lustful action sees you living a different way, especially if you used to be part of them, they're going to be not only shocked at the difference, the result will be, according to Peter, they heap abuse on you third point he makes in this section, Peter wants to remind them that in the end, as he's said over and over again, God will have the last word. Eventually, our abusers will be judged by God. Verse 5, they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then beginning of verse 7, and remember, the end of these things is near. In other words, it's sooner than you think. So this is the primary notion of the first movement in this chapter. If we're naming Christ as our Savior, if we're going to live a life that honors him, eventually that will rub up against some around us, and that will bring the hardship. So what we have to ask ourselves is, if that's not happening, because we know our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering right now. I mean, there will be those who, by the time we're finished today, will no longer be alive because of their faith as they were when we began our worship. Now, that's a startling thought, but that's happening to brothers and sisters around the world right now. And here we are. We're sitting in a public room. (laughs) We're worshiping Jesus. You go through your life. You you probably are a nice person. You probably get along with with most people. We're, we're, We're living this pretty safe life. And it's worth pausing and asking ourselves, If suffering for Christ on some level is inevitable, is there something I need to be looking at about my life? Am I truly defining who Christ is to people around me? Does my life show any difference? I don't think we're supposed to pray for death. 
pray for persecution, but I suspect because we have been so spared from it, we just avoid it altogether. We presume that path of least resistance. Instead of living clearly for Christ, we acclimate. Instead of speaking clearly for Christ, not naming his name for fear that someone might slam a door on us and simply hurt our feelings by saying, I've got my own religion, thank you. Had that happen yesterday, I'm still devastated by it. (laughs) I mean, let's admit it. Most of us, that's a traumatic thought that anybody would say anything like that to us. Where is Christ to me? And how does that show up when I engage as Christ's ambassador to the world around me? Do I by nature avoid that which is uncomfortable? When, in fact, that may be the very thing that Christ has called me to so that others might come to know him. You just have to wrestle with that. I need to pose that question. Peter goes on. The first thing he wants us to understand is, yes, suffering for Christ is inevitable. But the second movement in this chapter is to remind us that we shouldn't get knocked off course because of it. Stay on course. Let's look at this second section, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. When hardship comes, in whatever form it is, don't let it knock you off course. He lists five basic things that fall to us to keep doing in our journey to follow Christ and to live for him. The first thing he talks about is that we're to keep seeking God. That's verse 7. Be clear-minded, be self-controlled so that you can pray. Don't let the issue, the hardship, so set you off that you're unable to stay focused enough to be in connection with God. Prayer is not just, God, help me. Prayer is relationship with God. So the first thing Peter's saying is, when you face this persecution, keep seeking God. Don't run from him. Run to him. Second thing he says is to keep serving the family of God. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. He's speaking about our relationship with others in the faith. It's, again, a reminder that we need to pull together in hard times. None of us can face hardship, and it's rare that we can survive persecution on our own. We're meant to find hope and strength in one another. Keep serving the family of God. Third, keep using Your spiritual gift, keep using your gift. Verse 10 and following, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administrating God's grace in its various forms. God wires all of us with a unique capacity to make a difference for him in this world. Peter says, learn that ability and stay on the job. Keep using that gift, keep accomplishing good Fourth, keep speaking for God. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. What a powerful thought. We want to shut up when we face embarrassment, when we face ridicule. Peter says, no, 
Keep speaking for God. But make sure you are speaking for God. See, I believe all too often we get ourselves in trouble because we're speaking for ourselves. And we argue all sorts of things and think we're doing it as Christians when our light needs to shine clearly. Keep it about Christ, his love, his grace. But don't shut up. By all means, keep sharing the very words of God. I love that delineation. If you're going to speak, speak as though you're speaking the very words of God. How often we pontificate as Christians in circles, things that I think God doesn't even care about. What would be God's message in this moment? And we need to remember, it's a message of love. It's a message of grace. And then fifth, he says, keep living for God's glory. Verse 11b, you do that so that in all things God may be praised. Ultimately, whether we're in a time of prosperity and affirmation, whether we're in a season as the church was in the beginning of Acts where they were in favor with all the people, or at the end of Acts when they were being persecuted by almost every part of culture around them, no matter what season we're in, we do everything we do for God's glory. Stay on course. Always live to make much of God. If we're living for Christ, persecution will come in some form. But don't get knocked off course. Stay on course. Live the life that God's called you to do. And then the third movement is, as far as the persecution itself, just face it head on. Let's begin reading from verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Okay, just listen to this verse. This is a very interesting verse. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. <laughs> what, a, what an interesting mix. Murderer, thief, prisoner, meddler. Why am I suffering? I meddled. I meddled in the name of Jesus, but I meddled. Even that shouldn't be the cause of suffering. Let's, let's read on. I love that. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Just verse 19 to end. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So Peter says the response of facing persecution in some form because we name Christ and we live for him. When that comes, first, don't get knocked off course. Stay on course. But then here's how you need to respond to that hardship. And he names four things. First, accept persecution as common. Verse 12, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. Shock should never be part of our response. Jesus said, don't be surprised. If the world hated you, those same people that hated me are going to turn that animosity against you. That's going to happen. So, first of all, accept persecution is common. Second, rejoice because you share in Christ's suffering. How interesting. It's, it's like he names it as a badge of courage. You bear the name of Christ. Consider it a privilege. Jesus said, remember, it's me that they hate. 
You're just the object of the outpouring of that hatred. Right? Rejoice, you share in Christ's suffering. Third, commit yourself to God. That's verse uh, uh, 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Ultimately, that's what you need to do. Not avoid, just say, Lord, it's yours. I can't control the outcome of this. I can only follow you, and I can only obey you. I'm leaving the outcome to you. And we can say that because Peter's already reminded us over and over again, God doesn't miss anything. He doesn't miss a thing. He will have the last word. Even Jesus, according to Peter earlier on, silently committed himself to his heavenly Father who would judge rightly. Commit yourself to your heavenly Father. And then finally, verse 12 at the end, continue to do good. Just keep doing it. Keep moving forward. Persecution is not an excuse for bailing out on this journey. In fact, it's part of the package. So where does this put us? I want to recommend a couple books for you today. One is Fox's Book of Martyrs. Have any, any of you ever read that? It's a collection of stories of people who died for their faith and the great persecutions throughout history. And there's a new book called Jesus Freaks, which is a, a telling of modern-day martyrs, which I think is worth all of our reading, just to be aware of what's out there. But one of the stories that moves me the most is the story of the 40 martyrs of Sebaste. And this was the Eastern Roman Empire under Emperor Licinius when uh, the Western Empire had already, under Constantine, chosen to stop persecuting Christians. But the Eastern Roman Empire refused to honor that, and they continued to put them to death. And in Sebaste, about 40 soldiers refused to deny their faith, and they were stripped of all their clothing, and they were put out on a frozen lake in the middle of winter. They had a warm fire on the edge of the lake, and they had an altar. And they said, simply come, warm yourself at the fire, offer sacrifice to the emperor, deny your Christ, and you can live. Forty men. They gathered in a circle and began to sing hymns together. A mother of one of the youngest soldiers pled with him to come and survive. And that one out of 40 surrendered his faith and came and offered sacrifice and was free. And at that point, having watched the joy in these men at the thought of dying because they bear the name of Christ and the obvious presence and strength of God in their worship, the head of that corps of soldiers stripped himself naked and went out and professed Christ and joined them. That's a, a historically accurate description of what happened in Sebaste in the early part of the fourth century. I put myself now in this society where I, I'm at liberty to worship Christ any way I want. I say, how do I process this? And I don't want to offer some thoughts to us as to how I think we, we should process this today. For me, what happens when I think about those that are dying and have died for their faith is this question. Could I do it? Could, could I do it? Do I have enough faith? Could I die for Christ if I needed to? I think that that's probably not the right question. I think the question is, 
can I deal today with the challenges that God's called me to deal with today as I name his name and live my life for him in front of people around me? Am I willing to face that? See, I think that's the more important question. And that's the question that I think we fail to answer correctly. That's where we really decide whether we understand what it means to take up our cross and follow Christ. Am I willing to live tomorrow with the difficulties of what it might mean to do the right thing and to be the light of Christ around me? I think that's a far more important question. And then I want you to think about the value of our wrestling with this call of Jesus to find life in him by dying to self. There's that old statement that until I have something worth dying for, I really don't have anything worth living for. This teaching about the inevitability of hardship because of our faith, of the call to surrender ourselves to Christ, to take up our cross and follow him, reminds us that not only is Christ worth dying for, he is the only thing worth living for. Jesus is the path. He's the one true calling. He is the reason to live. And inevitably, he will also be our reason for dying.